Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung. Unfortunately, I'm not joined by my good friends, Justin Taylor and Colin Hansen, who are otherwise um, disposed. They're not disposed uh, or deposed, just predisposed. But I am joined by a new friend who I'll introduce in just a second, James Eglinton. And he is here. I'm very excited to talk about his new book, a biography on Herman Bovink. But first, let me mention that today's episode is sponsored by Crossway. We're grateful, as always, for Crossway's partnership with this podcast. And we want to highlight today J.I. Packer's book, Concise Theology. As our listeners will know, Dr. Packer passed on into glory earlier this summer. And Crossway has a, a wonderful treat for us. 94 chapters in this book, uh, Concise Theology. So, Unfortunately, Jim Packer never never got to do his systematic theology, but this is a great way to get in very bite-sized nuggets some of his insights onto the core doctrines of the faith. So check that out, J.I. Packer, Concise Theology. Thank you to Crossway. Dr. Eglinton, I presume. <laughs> nice to have you with us. James is the... Do I have this right? The Meldrum Senior Lecturer in Reformed Theology? That's correct. Is that That's how you say it? Thanks, Kevin. Yep. Yeah, at the University of Edinburgh. So yes. thank you so much for being with us. First of all, really, congratulations on a great book. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a flatterer. I really love the book, and I've been really looking forward to talking to you about it. I anticipate that you will have lots of opportunities to do interviews like this. We've already done a, a print interview on Gospel Coalition, and I know others are lined up to interview you. It, it's it's very readable. It's well researched. It's timely. So thank you for that. Uh, I, I'd love for you to. Uh, we've just gotten to know each other over email over the summer, but That's right. for my own sake mm -hmm. and for our listeners, tell us just a little bit about your background, your family, your education, what you're doing at the esteemed University of Edinburgh these days. Sure. So I am Scottish. I grew up in the Highlands of Scotland, um, very much between two cultures. Um, so on one side of my family, uh, English-speaking Lowland Scots, and on the other side of my family, Gaelic-speaking Hebridean Scots. Oh, really? Um, you speak Gaelic? I do, yeah. I do speak it with, at home with my kids and with my wife. Um, oh, so fantastic. we're part of this this 1% of the population who, who speak it still. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the Free Church of Scotland. That's where I spent my formative years. So it's a Presbyterian denomination. Um, I um, became really interested in theology towards the end of my high school years. Um, so my last year of high school, I took a religion philosophy class where um, I started to to read all of this stuff that I that completely blew my mind. Um, started to I started reading Calvin then in high school and I never really looked back. Um, so this class was taught by a retired uh, pastor from my denomination who'd become a high school religion teacher. So, um, so yeah, he got me into uh, engaging my mind, I guess, with with serious theological sources. Um, I, after that, I studied law at the University of Aberdeen. Oh really? And um, I did that as as a kind of um, background to going on to seminary. That was my plan. So, in my Presbyterian tradition, um, if you want to go to seminary and if you're thinking of pastoral ministry afterwards, and you're still quite young, uh, you're encouraged to do a degree in something else first, and then go on to your theology training. So I did. I, I studied law. 
and then went from there to the Free Church College in Edinburgh, known as known as Edinburgh Theological Seminary. Um, right. Studied under uh, some great theologians. Um, Donald McLeod was teaching systematics then, so that was a really formative privilege. Um, after that, I then did my PhD at the University of Edinburgh on, on Herman Bavinck. Um, worked for three years part-time while I was doing that for a free church congregation in the middle of Edinburgh. And um, when that all finished, uh, when I finished my PhD, um, we then moved to the Netherlands. So we went, oh. kind of go big or go home with the Dutch thing. So I, had, yeah. I got a postdoc at the Theological University in Kampen, which is a, a beautiful Dutch town. It's where Herman Bavink spent a few decades yeah. of his life. Um, so I spent three years there, uh, really happily um, immersing myself in Dutch language and culture and um, uh, books and um, making great friends. And um, so I worked there for three years doing research on Bavink, on Abraham Kuyper. Um, I was also looking a lot at the history of connections between Scottish Reformed theology and Dutch Reformed theology. So um, I was just a, a nerd in paradise. I, I really, really loved my time there. And then after that, I, I was appointed to the position I now have at the University of Edinburgh. So we've been back in Edinburgh for about seven years. And um, a lot of the fruit of those years has been the biography that we're talking about today. That's fantastic. And uh, I'm not the 1% who speaks Gaelic, but I may be the 1% who has all three of these volumes. Oh, nice. The, the nice. History of Scottish Theology, Volume 1. Um, we'll get this in our, our show notes, but... It's like $100 a hundred dollars a volume, so I don't know how if they'll fly off the shelves. But thank you. You have a. I'm reading through volume one. You have a chapter, isn't your chapter in here on? Yeah, so it's Dutch on connections. connections. Well, it's on connections between Reformed Christians in Scotland with France and with the Netherlands um, in the early modern period, so 16th, 17th uh, centuries. So it was really fun to, to put that together and um, just work out how you know this that particular period. Um, the Reformed faith, especially, is, is in just very different um, kind of social situations in those three countries. Um, in the Netherlands, it's it's really flourishing, and they have great universities. In Scotland, it's very difficult politically at that point for Reformed Christians, and lots of them are exiled to the Netherlands and write some great books while they're there. And then the French have their own struggles that are very particular as well, um, with lack of toleration of Protestants. Um, and, and performed Christians in particular. So yeah, it was a, a really enjoyable chapter to write. That's really interesting. I remember when I was doing my uh, research on Witherspoon, I think it was Phil Riken in one of his chapters on Protestant scholasticism. Of course, he did his doctoral work on Boston, but he said uh, for much of the, the early Scottish history, they were importers rather than exporters of the Reformed theology. Mm. Do you think that's true? Um, I mean, I think early Reformed theology in Europe is it's just a melting pot. Um, you know, the, and it was very normal for quite a long time that when you went to study, um, you know, you weren't just at one city in one country for the whole of your education. It was called peregrination. So you moved around Germany and Switzerland and France and the Netherlands. So um, there are lots of moving pieces to that puzzle. But yeah, a lot of Reformed theology was imported into Scotland, um, but also you know, made into its own thing as well, into this distinct Scottish um, reform tradition. So uh, how did you get interested in Herman Bavink? Sure. So um, so when I was a student at seminary, that was just around the time that the English translations of Bavink's Reformed Dogmatics were being released. And uh, he was this new figure on the horizon. 
And um, Donald McLeod, my systematics professor, would quote him quite a lot and occasionally would drop um, things into lectures like people should start thinking about doing mm. PhDs on Mavink. And a few people who were quite formative in my life at that point also made that suggestion independently. Um, I knew Carl Truman quite well from my undergrad days in Aberdeen because we went to the same church and he was a um, professor at the university. Uh, he also suggested to me, why don't you think about working on Mavink? Um, and David Ferguson at the University of Edinburgh, who I ended up doing my PhD under, also suggested it independently. So um, providentially, it's really that, that, that Bavink found me, I guess. He was coming at me from every angle. And um, just when I discovered his works, it's just great theology. It's, it's yeah. so rich. He's so profound in his reflections on scripture and so committed to the Bible, but also so rich in his understanding of historical theology. And his ability to give you this big picture of the history of any particular idea in Christian theology and how it developed in the patristic period, the medieval era, what happens to the Reformation, what are the big challenges that the Enlightenment and secularization um, pose to that particular doctrine, and how do you articulate that doctrine today? Uh, Bavink is just incredible. He's, he's like a hawk who flies above the forest of Christian theology. You can see every tree and you can see the whole forest, but can zoom in and you know see this, the tiny mouse running underneath the leaves as well. Uh, just the way that he does all of this, was it really blew my mind. It's just fantastic stuff to discover. Um, so I, I did my PhD on him, on his understanding of how the Trinity is revealed in the world and the general revelation um, of God um, in a way that still keeps the, the Trinity this three-in-one way of being uh, for the persons of the Godhead that still keeps that unique to God, but nonetheless is revealed even in the world in which we live. So he has a really interesting creative account of that. Um, so I got into his theology like that, and the biographical interest grew out of that mm -hmm. as well. Um, so when I started reading not just Bavink, but also what other people had written about him, I found that for a lot of the 20th century, people had written not about one Herman Bavink, but about two. Um, yeah, say more about that. This is a big, big theme in your book. What, who, who, what are the two Bavinks and why are sure. you disappointed with or trying to critique that historiography? Yeah, so the two Bavinks idea is that when you look at his life, um, you find what I think is a really fascinating figure. You find someone who is thoroughly committed to his own theologically conservative, orthodox, Calvinist tradition, but who also is a really enthusiastic, involved participant in modern culture and in modern science, modern scholarship, modern politics, modern journalism. And a lot of people who read Bavink in the 20th century thought that that combination was unusual and that there's no way that one person could be going in those two directions intentionally. So a lot of people who read Babink across the 20th century spoke about two Babinks, one being the orthodox Babink and the other being the modern Babink. And he was portrayed for quite a long time as a Jekyll and Hyde figure in Reformed theology and as someone who's just pushed and pulled between two opposing desires and can never choose which one he really wants to be, whether he wants to run with the modern crowd or you know go back to the 17th century with all the, the solidly Reformed people. So I, the more I read Bavink, the more I thought this just doesn't stack up. Um, when you really get into the details of his thoughts, he has ways of wanting to be an Orthodox Calvinist in the modern world. And he understood Orthodoxy as something that is expressed um, and that carries on throughout history and that develops um, 
and that actually needs to be expressed and articulated in each new phase of history. And as culture develops as well, you have to keep on pushing orthodoxy forward into it. So I started to see that really the two Bavinks approach to reading him and trying to make sense of his thought just doesn't work. So my first book pushed back pretty hard against that. Um, but the first book wasn't really on his life. Um, so what does it look like for one person to try and live that kind of a life where you're an Orthodox Calvinist, but you're, you know, you're, you've got a finger in, in every pie. You know, you're trying to engage with everything around you. Um, it was more about the, the workings of his theology that allowed him to want to be theologically who he was. But within that, there's this biographical claim that was in my first book that grew out of the PhD thesis, which is that there's only one Herman Bavink rather than two. So that, I think, set up the, the need for there to be a follow-up, which would really have to be a biography. Yeah. So if we've done Bavink the, the, and the, the theology. What do we have to say in that light about Bavink the theologian or Bavink the human being? What is, what is a life that's trying to do this look like? So how was it? Because your, your training is now systematics and, and historical theology and history. They, they intermingle, but you're a lecturer in systematic theology. That's your expertise, and you're doing history very well. So what was the process like, and hmm. did you have to learn new skills, or you were pretty well into the sources and knew what you were doing from your PhD work? Yeah, that's, that's a really observant question as well. So I think some a few things really helped me um, take on this project. One was actually, if I go back into my own biography a bit, doing a law degree as my preparation for my theology degree, because a, part of why I chose that subject, uh, and in Scotland, you don't have to do you know pre-law and then go on to do your JD. In Scotland, you go straight into law, like 18 years old, and um, really get cracking on it very early. Yeah. Um, but part of why I chose the degree itself as a subject was that it was almost like a liberal arts degree. Um, if you study law, you do legal philosophy, jurisprudence, and that's a good training for something like systematic theology. You do a lot of legal history, and that trains you in his historical research. Uh, you know, you pick up bits and pieces of Latin. Um, so you do all these things that are actually very useful. You do public speaking, which for me, that was a really useful thing in thinking about going on to seminary. So I had this training in and history in the first place that I acquired through my um, through my theology degree. And then going through seminary, I did lots of church history and lots of historical theology anyway. Uh, my PhD was, I think, somewhere in that um, like amorphous zone between systematic right. theology and historical theology. So the way that, that my supervisor um, encouraged me to think about doing a doctorate, and I do this with all of my, my own PhD students, is to view doing a historical theology PhD as a stepping stone onto doing your own systematics, your own constructive theology at a later stage. But before you do that, um, step into a master's workshop and spend three years just trying to learn how they craft what they do. So take take a few years and become an expert interpreter of someone who has all of these skills in a fully developed way and just learn to think their thoughts after them. Learn um how their minds worked and um, the kind of context that they worked in and how all of those factors come together. So you, for me, that kind of training was systematic theology and that I was tracing out Bavink's approach to doing theology in a systematic way and also trying to say something constructive on that basis. Um, but it's also deeply historical at the same time. So I think I was blessed to have um, a kind of training that I want to pass on to other students. 
that set me up pretty well to do the kind of historical work that I've done in the biography. Um, I also had a very good mentor in all of this in George Harrick from the, the Free University of Amsterdam and also the Theological University in Kampen. Um, so I, I got to know him pretty well when I was doing my PhD and uh, he's become a, a really valued mentor and friend. Uh, he is the Netherlands' top historian of neo-Calvinism, mm. of, of Bavink and Kuiper and that whole tradition. So I, when I went to Kampen to do my postdoc, it was to spend three years working with George, which was also in lots of ways like being an apprentice in a master's workshop. Um, it was just, it was a huge privilege to learn from him and to spend three years talking about how to how to think historically, how to write history. Um, so th that was a really wonderfully enjoyable experience that has, that I think, equipped me and, and gave me these yeah. skills. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, beyond that, there's also lots of other stuff in terms of an aspect of your question, how do you do a work like this? Um, so in those three years in the Netherlands, I spent lots of time in the Babbage yeah, archives. In the archives and, and reading yeah. all Dutch papers and your Dutch all that kind of stuff. Be excellent yeah. by now or already was because of the PhD. Did you enjoy that? Get your fingernails dirty into these old archival sources? Yeah, it was it was just a labor of love. I mean it was it was so fascinating. Um, it was like having a, another world to escape into. You could just mm -hmm. step into this room and open up these old handwritten journals and letters and then you've got the newspaper next to you from the day that that was written and you are just transported into the 19th century into and such a fascinating historical period as well. Um, so in a way, I felt really sad to finish the, the book, although I was glad to get it done and I'm really excited about it getting out now so people can read it. But um, I loved in my imagination, I guess, inhabiting that world in that period. It was it was so immensely enjoyable um, just to follow so many interesting developments in, in Western society and politics and the academy and, and to follow it all through one one historical actor who's such an interesting person and how his life develops in that context. Yeah, it, it, it's really fascinating. Let's I'll jump into the biography. I have way more. I have 26 questions. We won't get through all of these. Right. But you say early on that in the early 20th century, this is um, early in your biography, 20th century Netherlands, Bavink was a household name. Now, we mm. use that expression sometimes, and it's often not really true. I mean, mm. uh, John Piper, Tim Keller, are a household name. Well, in in certain very specific kinds of households. But I get the sense he really was a household name in the Netherlands. So it, is that true? And I assume it is. You said it. Why? How, how could that be the case? Not just, you know, nerdy theology hmm. guys, but everyone knew Herman Bovink of him? Yeah, he was a household name in his own context. And his name still has recognition even outside of theological circles in the Netherlands today in a way that even surprised me when I first moved there. So I was once getting a haircut in the Netherlands. This is a completely true story. And um, the barber asked me, oh, so you're Scottish, but you've learned Dutch. You know, why did you learn this language? And I just assumed, you know, this guy's probably not going to care about this theologian that I did my PhD on. So I told him I did, I did doctoral work on a Dutch theologian. I've moved here to do more research. Um, but, you know, you probably won't have heard of him. And uh, he said, oh, so what was his name? So I told him, Herman uh, Bavink. And he said, oh, yeah, I know Bavink's name. Um, there's a Bavink Street that's just a couple of streets away from where I live. And I actually went to a Dr. H. Bavink school that was named after him. So this guy said, you know, I, I don't really know much about him, but I know that he was really important um, in his day. And there are lots of things named after him. So 
there are Babink streets in various Dutch cities. Um, there are lots of primary schools across the country that are named after him um, still. So there's still name recognition, even by people who probably don't read theology. Um, so the, the traces of impact from his life are still there. Um, but in his own day, you know, so we think of Bavink, at least I hope the biography will change this in the English-speaking world, but we know Bavink as the dogmatician, as the guy who wrote these four huge volumes of theology. And they're such huge uh, tomes of theology, and they're, they're amazing, but you know, you try and imagine how much time it would take to produce this. And you would probably imagine that you don't really have much time left over for anything else in your life. So it's your magnum opus, and it's really what you spent all day every day working on and you've left something remarkable behind but that was all you did you were a theologian and nothing beyond that but actually what's so fascinating about Bavink's life is that he wrote these volumes of theology but also did so many other things so what I've tried to rescue in the biography is the reality that although Bavink was this exceptional theologian and I think the best of his generation in the Netherlands and one of the best by far in the 20th century more broadly, but as well as that, he was really a polymath, an intentionally Christian polymath who tried to live a life that was extending in so many different directions all at once um, and that made him a household name. So he was uh, a national newspaper editor for a couple of years. Um, he was a member of parliament for the last decade of his life where you know you would read his speeches in, across all the you know, daily newspapers um, he was um, a, a celebrated biographer. Uh, he wrote a brilliant biography of a, of a poet called Willem Bilderdijk that was praised by non-Christians as well uh, and by, by skeptics. It was, just, it was a great piece of work on a famous Dutch poet. Um, he, he really reshaped how Dutch education was set up. Um, for example, um, he played a very important role in women being given the right to vote. Um, so he's doing all of these things all at the same time. Um, he was a pioneer in new developments in psychology. Uh, I mean, just doing so much stuff. Um, he was a celebrated travel writer. Um, so I think what we maybe don't have a good sense of, you know, because our context is so different. And if we're, uh, even in the Netherlands, it's so different now. But 100 years ago, um, when, or further back than that, when Bavink was young, for example, when he went to university, uh, he was one of a tiny number of university students in the entire country. So you have, I think when he went to university, maybe around 3.3 million people in the Netherlands of whom you, know, you have fewer than you know, 1,500, 1,500 wow. university students. So almost nobody does this. Um, so if you're at university, you're already um, a person of national interest. Um, so you're you just the kind of access that you have to the corridors of power. Um, you know, your things are re reported in the, in, the, in the press, even, you know, who's passed which exams. Um, all that kind of stuff. So people really know and care about this because, you know, these are the, the movers and the shakers at, at university at that point. And the kind of people that you would come into contact with as a student are going to be this, you know, elite set of politicians, newspaper editors, professors, theologians. So they all know each other anyway. And that means that you're incredibly well connected from the beginning. And you just get used to being in the public eye from, from quite young. So that's very much his life. And that really did make him a household name. So Bavink was undoubtedly brilliant, a, a polymath, as you said. If I have the dates right from your biography, he, he began gathering materials for the Reform Dogmatics, 1884. So he's 30 years old. You know, I, I had in my mind, I guess I, sh I did, just didn't put the math together. You know, I was thinking of Hodge, who 
that was his magnum opus, you know, mm-hmm. in, in later years put together his lectures. But he's already thinking about this from very early on as a professor. And the mm-hmm. first volume appears in 1895. Mm-hmm. So he's 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 my age. I'm going to guess your age ish. 1897, 98, 1901 is four volumes and then revised significantly and finally all out in 1911. So, I mean, he is absolutely brilliant. One of the things I remember from your biography, some early biographer sort of painted it as, well, he wasn't a very good student and initially, and it seemed like you Mm -hmm. were saying, "Eh, I'm not sure. He was probably pretty brilliant from the get-go. Did people recognize early on this guy is really, really smart? Mm. So it's actually something that I try and push back on in the biography in the first place, how we think about the search for a brilliant child. Mm -hmm. So there's a very romanticized notion of genius that develops um, that that wasn't really prominent when Babbink himself was young, because I think in, in that phase of Dutch history, people just weren't all that attuned to childhood behavior and how significant it was. So people thought at that point that their childhood was important formatively for what they became, but they were less concerned with um, uh, you know, following childhood behavior very carefully um, and you know, searching for a, a diamond in the rough or something like that. Um, but something that develops after this is a romantic search for you know, the first time that someone saw that this genius that we all know of was truly a genius. And um, it's almost a rite of passage that's you know, that's constructed that, you know, well, if he's really a genius, when, when was he first spotted? You know, right. who was the first person who, you know, heard this great singer sing when they were in a church choir or, you know, you need that part of the story that sets up the genius uh, as discovered at a certain point. And that's, so that's something that Babink's um, earliest Dutch biographer um, put into his biography that, um, that when he was young, um, like his dad moved to pastor a church that was near a very good um, school, and then the, there was a teacher from the school who went to meet the two Bavink boys because Bavink's dad thought that Bavink's other brother was the genius and right. that Herman was very smart. And then the teacher is the one who spots that Herman is, is really a genius. Um, so this is in the, the first long Dutch biography. But the problem with that historically, as well as knowing whether that conversation ever took place, because it's very word of mouth by word of mouth by word of mouth, you know, recorded decades and decades and decades after. But the problem, the really big problem is that Having didn't have a brother at that stage, um, so the whole story—the more you, the more you start to push it a little bit—is really problematic and it falls apart. Um, but what we don't find, well, what we find, I think, more significantly than you know, was having obviously a genius when he was, you know, three years old. What's far more significant is that his parents were extremely ambitious for their children with what they could achieve in life. Um, and also ambitious for them as Christians as well, as quite conservative Calvinist Christians, um, that their children would go on to have lots of opportunities in life and um, really bring their, their their own Christian tradition and their church into the center of Dutch society. Um, and I think, we, again, we don't really grasp the significance of that in the English-speaking world just because we don't really know much about 19th century you know, Dutch church history, but it's a really interesting history. Um, because until 1848, so for the first half of that century, the Netherlands wasn't a democracy, and you don't have basic social freedoms like freedom of religion, um, uh, and in any kind of absolute sense, it's very limited freedom of assembly. Instead, you have a, a monarch who is an authoritarian ruler, and who, and uh, if you were reformed, you 
you legally, you know, you were required to be part of the the, the mainline state Dutch Reformed Church that the king approves of, and that the king has a lot of control of financially. You know, there's a government office that tries to say what you're going to sing on Sundays, that produces songbooks that are very patriotic and theologically liberal and all that kind of stuff. So Baden came from a church that had seceded from that, and then that before that you were allowed to do that. So their pastors would regularly be imprisoned and beaten and fined and if you were from that church and you had kids, um, the, you know, you, there was this glass ceiling that really wasn't very far above your head at all for what your kids could achieve because you were really pariahs in Dutch society. And that all changes a few years before Herman Babbink is born because there's a democratic revolution and then the, you know, the, the king loses all of his powers and um, all of a sudden the power moves to the people who can, who've got freedom all of a sudden, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, and the press becomes opened up so anyone can write what they think. So you have this brand new kind of culture that these parents, this pastor, Jan Bavink and his wife, are then bring up their kids in. And um, they, they really want their kids to take all of these opportunities that are now available to them. Uh, you know, so, they're, they're, so the four Bavink sons who live into adulthood, you know, one trains to be a pastor, the other three, uh, you know, one becomes a medical doctor who does a PhD in medicine. One is Herman Bavink, this great theologian, and the other died when he was in the, the middle of his PhD work um, in law. Uh, so you, you have these really ambitious parents whose sons all go on to be really high achievers, actually. And coming from a background where, you know, the, these people had their own schools before 1848 that were clandestine, that were illegal, that had pretty low, you know, educational standards as well because they had no resources. Um, the story is actually really fascinating with how one family goes from, you know, state-sponsored oppression to producing a, a bunch of sons, actually, not just Herman Bavink, but who go on to excel in law, medicine, and theology. It's, it's, and, and the church is really interesting. James, I have so many things I want to ask you. Uh, let's. You already talked about his parents, which are um, Jan. Yep. Is that how you would say it? Jan, yeah. Yes. And how do you pronounce his mom's name? Jezina? Yeah. So uh, I should know that, um, being a de young and learning a, a little bit of Dutch here and there. But I'd love to just do lightning round here and go mm-hmm. through a few family and friends, key people in his biography, and you just you give a few sentences. So you talked already about his parents. Um, say a little bit about Henry Dosker, and I'm interested in Henry Dosker, a good friend of his, and you you, you pull from a lot of letters. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned to you over email that I went to Hope College in Holland, Michigan, which shows up several times in the biography, and I had friends who lived in Dosker Cottage. So there's, oh, wow. yes, there's buildings nice. named after him, yep. and I may ask you later about Van Ralty, because mm-hmm. he's certainly a, a big deal, and mm-hmm. I, I can... I could take you to the statue of Van Ralty in Centennial Park in Holland, Michigan. So a lot of these people are still, at least their names are known in the part of the world where I'm from. So tell us, Henry Dosker, who was he? Why is he important to Bavink? Yeah, so he was um, Bavink's teenage best friend. Uh, So from the Netherlands as well. And uh, Dosker's dad was Bavink's pastor when Bavink became a professing member of the church. And this was when Bavink was living away from home as a teenager to go to a classical high school. And then Dosker moved to the States when his father became a pastor in Grand Rapids. And they kept in touch um, throughout the rest of their lives. I think that they 
that Dusker thought that they were maybe closer than Bavink thought they were. So it's a slightly yeah, awkward imbalance uh-huh. um, friendship. And Dusker, you know, Bavink, or Bavink's life developed in all kinds of fascinating ways, you know, with his theological development in ways that Dusker didn't really understand. Um, he just, you know, he was on another continent and was quite far from, you know, the mother country. Um, but Dusker mediated Bavink for quite a while to America, especially because, you know, he was bilingual, English and Dutch, and um, he was a, was a close personal friend. And I think something I've tried to challenge a bit in the biography is you know, reading Bavink too much through Dusker, because I think you can see quite clearly from their letters that Dusker didn't always get what Bavink was doing. And I don't think Bavink was um, completely... Um, maybe just open uh, in a kind of close friend way in his letters with Dusker. Dusker really pours himself into his letters mm-hmm. and Bavink's responses are just always a bit shorter, a bit less personal than Dusker complains. You know, I've told you all this stuff about me. Come on, what's going on in your life? So, yeah. um, so he's, he's throughout the biography um, and really interesting as well, but maybe not as close to Bavink as he, as he thought he was. So one of his other close friends who's uh, on the different side of, the spectrum from Dosker is Snook Hergonje? 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 That's the tough one, Hergonje. Yes. So he is one of the most fascinating people in the biography. He's probably yeah. the most unusual in the biography by quite some way. So he, he was an aristocrat uh, whose dad was a pastor, uh, but who, in context, very controversially, abandoned his wife and fled to London with another woman. And Sosnuk Rechonia is the product of that union. So he was a pastor, a kind of liberal pastor in the mainstream mm-hmm. Reformed Church. So Sosnuk Rechonia was an aristocrat, so bore that kind of a burden, but also was scandalized by his family associations. So he studied at Leiden University at the same time as Bavink did. And they were both outsiders in their university in different kinds of ways, but struck up a friendship as people who were opposites in most regards, in almost every regard. Um, but they both really valued having a critical friends who didn't think uh, like they did. Um, so they became friends and then stayed friends for life. Um, and Bavink Even when Snook is, became a, a Muslim, sort of? So, so Snook became, that's, that's part of why Snook is uh, really famous as well in his own way, because he was one of the first people to enter uh, Mecca during the Hajj and take photographs. And that propelled him to you know, international stardom in his own day because he had these pictures and had these experiences. But to do that, he had to convert to Islam. And um, and then, but he kind of, he, he has this, he's far more of a Jekyll and Hyde character than Herman Bavink, actually. Herman Bavink is one consistent identity, but Snooker Kronje, when he's in the Netherlands, is Christian Snooker mm-hmm. you know, Doesn't regard himself as a Muslim, dresses in Western clothes, all that kind of stuff. And um, when he's in the Muslim world, he becomes Abd al-Khafar, the Haji, um, the, you know, this guy who married a Muslim teenager living in the living on Java. Had multiple and, wives. And, and yeah, and, and had, you know, Muslim kids as well. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, that he left behind there thinking that he'd done the right thing by them in terms of Islamic law, but then moved back to the Netherlands, marries a Dutch woman. And I think lots of this kind of double life actually was quite unknown to Bavink. So Snook is this riddle to Bavink. But Bavink tries really hard to engage with him throughout his life as a Christian as well. And so like Bavink's book, Philosophy of Revelation, really fantastic book based on lectures that Bavink gave in Princeton, all about, it's apologetics, basically. It's why is it reasonable to believe in um, revelation that God reveals himself? And actually, if you don't believe in revelation, how is it hard to make a kind of consistent, coherent, compelling account of how to live in the world? So it's really apologetics. 
Um, but Babbing's dialogue partner, as he's writing this, is his close, unbelieving friend, Snooker Chronia. So Snooker Chronia is fascinating. He's really odd, really weird. Um, but just having a figure like that who flits in and out of Islam and a Muslim identity as a constant figure in Babbing's life is really interesting too. Yeah, I, I didn't know any of that at all. And the other, well, there's lots of things I didn't know. But I was also fascinated by Amelia Dendecker mm. and the role that she played in Bavink's life. His, uh, well, I, I don't know if it's unrequited love. Uh, you, mm. you do a good job of saying, well, was this her hiding behind her father or was it really mm. her father? But say a little bit about Amelia because it, they never married and she never married in her whole yep. long life. Mm. But Herman was head over heels in love with her writing Latin, you know, mystery code in his, mm. in his journal about her, but it never worked out. Who was she? Why didn't they ever get married? Yeah. So he, he first got to know her when he was um, a teenager in the time that he grew up in. So they were the Dundeckers, this, the girl's family, Amelia were from the next town along. So, um, and she was she was a few years older than him as well, I think four or five years older. And uh, he was really besotted with her as a teenager. Uh, some of his earliest diary entries are about her. And as you say, they're coded in Latin for secrecy. Um, I mean, he he was... That's he what really all of us do to... in, in our journals. I'm always <laughs> coding in Latin. So, you know, what Baving does is a deeper level of code still sometimes is when he's writing about his friends as a student, if something controversial happens, he will he will write the first name in Arabic um, letters yeah. and then write the surname in Hebrew. Um, so yeah, he, he was the master of, of reading. He was like a spy in his own yeah. sense. But um, so Amelia, he, he really wanted to marry her. We, in, in his journals, we have, I mean, that, that's the tearjerker part of the biography, I think. Mm -hmm. This goes on from when he's a teenager to the age of 31, that he still hopes to marry her, um, but wasn't allowed to because her father wouldn't give consent. And in the Netherlands, before you could get married, you had to pursue parental permission three times. And um, only when you'd exhausted those options could you get married without parental permission, but it was very controversial socially. And you, you, know, you have to be kind of well into your mature adult life before you're allowed to get married without parental permission. So when Babbink's young, you know, teenagers in his 20s, even into his early 30s, um, he's really dependent on this, this woman's father giving him permission, and the father never would. Um, but we have, and we have lots of interesting details, really sad details in his, um, in his diaries and also come across in some of his letters as well that he hopes to marry her. So, and he ends up being pretty unhappy as uh, when he, he's single. And uh, it's an annoying thing about Dosker's letters, I think, for Bavink, that Dosker thinks that Bavink is single in principle. And so, uh, yeah. he, he always says, you know, you're like a, a, capu you're a capuchin, you're a kind of monk uh -huh. um, who doesn't want to get married. And um, Bavink really, really did and wanted to marry Amelia initially. But the singleness then frees him up to become much more bookish and pr produce the dogmatics remarkably. Yeah. One of the um, things, I just uh, read this paragraph to my pastoral ministry class here last week, and it's uh, from the year and a half where he's, uh, Bavink is a pastor, mm -hmm. and he's, was it, I don't remember if it was Dosker or if it was Snook who was writing, do you have more time for your studies? And he said, um, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching twice, I'm catechizing four times, what do you think? Of course I don't have any time. And then he writes this very plaintive paragraph about how lonely he was, hmm. um, how it was taxing on his soul spiritually to kind of be the, the holy man. And, and even 
it seemed like it'd be too far to say he was he was doubting his faith, but he was just feeling this pressure to be the confident spokesman for the faith at every turn, at every moment, and compounded, as you said, that he was single. And as you point out so well, you know, in, in that time, a, a single man like that wouldn't have been expected to live on his own and do his cooking and cleaning. Uh, when he was in university, he would have someone do that for him. But now he was living with an older couple from the church. And so literally to have any time by himself, he had to go into his room. So he's kind of the worst of both worlds. He was always on as a pastor. And yet he he never he didn't have the the companionship that he was he was longing for at that time. What, what did you make of that? And I'll get back to his the woman he did marry in just a moment. But that year and a half in pastoral ministry was was Bavink was he a fish out of water? Was he not fit well for that, or was it just a time in in life where things came together and made for a difficult season? I think for him it, it was a huge adjustment to make. Uh, he'd gone from an elite university, uh, a very privileged existence, but also a very carefree existence as well as a student, and all of a sudden had been thrust into this. A small town, you know, culturally conservative, where people had a very particular set of social expectations about the minister, and you know, where you would never address a minister informally or see see your pastor as someone that could be your friend, or, you know, that you could go and you know play around he, golf with. He's the dominie. Yeah, he's the dominie. So you have to treat him ultra formally, and um, that's where he, I think, noticed immediately, you know. I really wish that I were married and that I had someone who could see me as just Herman rather than always being, you know, um, Domine Bavink. And that was, that was a really huge shift to make overnight. Um, the constant production of sermons as well was quite hard for him because he preached maybe like 50 or so times before he was ordained, but almost always in the same two texts. So all of a sudden you have to write a different text, a different sermon, a different text every Sunday. And, um, you know, do all these other things, you know, uh, well, he wondered, am I just projecting myself into these situations where I don't really know these people, but all of a sudden I'm mourning with them and leading a funeral. And then I'm mm-hmm. celebrating with people who've just had a baby and um, I'm trying to work out, you know, how do I um, do this as myself? So um, is this all a bit fake? Am I just an actor who's learning how to act in all these different circumstances? I really believe this. I'm really sincere. So the questions that he asks of himself are actually really instructive for new Very people, not just new pastors, but any pastors, I think, and the, the challenges of being a minister. Um, so yeah. it was hard, but I think he, he grew into the role. And I think that he didn't realize just how much he'd grown into it until his birthday, the only birthday that came around when he was a pastor, when all these people from his church come to his house with really thoughtful gifts. And there's this outpouring of love. And you can tell from the gifts that they know him. You know, they give him like cigars, they give him... Um, you know, like books, they give him, you know, furniture for his office, and they give him things that, are, that really show that they have gotten to know their pastor as a person. And, um, you know, you see around that time when he writes about his time uh, in Franeker in this town's pastor, that he actually realizes he loves it here. And he has a couple of people in his church, an elder and his wife, who look out for him and get him out of the town quite often to go and visit other people who aren't part of his flock. And that really helps him as well, I think. Um, and he has, you know, good family and friends who come to visit him regularly to just be a lifeline. But he was really sad when he left, actually, to, to go and teach theology. Although he right. was, felt a bit somber when he began and wasn't really relishing it. You know, um, so I 
pastored for two years in Orange City, Iowa, which is mm-hmm. named after William of Orange. And I did take note in his his travel, you know, talking about journey to America. I put this on Twitter last week that he yeah, said, you know, Mich- Michigan was great. <laughs> In terms of virtue, Pella was better, and best of all was Orange City, Iowa. <laughs> you know, I was there. I don't know if it's changed since uh, I was there 15 years ago, but they they called me Domini. I was still, mm-hmm. even as an associate pastor, I was Domini de Young, and it was mm-hmm. uh, a small town and a, much reverence for the Domini. I can only imagine what that must have been like in the Netherlands a hundred years or hundred and. 30, 40 years prior, um, you know, Orange City, Iowa is so Dutch. They didn't, you know, in America, we're always asking, where are you from? Where are you from? And mm-hmm. what's your background? And and there, they didn't even ask if you were Dutch. They just assumed you were. And so they just said, well, what province are you from? And you could just skip yeah. all of the formalities, just go right mm-hmm. to province. So I, I found the book, uh, obviously, I love Bob Inc. I've read Reform Dogmatics. I didn't know a whole lot about his biography. So I found it fascinating in that way. And also as de Young, as a Dutch, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. We always Unless you're Scottish, obviously, because yeah, it's, it's the only thing that's better. Well, it, the, the, the accent perhaps. So I'll, I'll give you that. I So I'm, you're Scottish and you studied Dutch. I'm Dutch and I studied John Witherspoon, mm. a Scot. So I was, I loved reading about the connections he had with Dutch America, which mm-hmm. I know more about, and with these people that, oh, I never knew that that person had any connection to Herman Bovink and the names of these buildings and these places. It, in the back of the book, it it's fascinating, especially for Americans, his uh, 10 or 15 pages on his first journey to America. Uh, I, I know that one place where he's saying how great everything is he says except for the pillows so i'm not sure what was wrong with the yeah he said they disappoint the the pillows disappoint he also said i think in two places there are few handsome men but more and more beautiful women so so there you go uh he, (laughs) he made the point that you brought out as well that he felt like as much as he he raved about america in some ways and he was maybe being over polite but he thought that americans were too strong in their personality to be Calvinists. What did he mean by that? And he, I think he reflected on that more in his second trip as well, that he really thought Calvinism didn't have, you know, uh, there were these pockets of Dutch reformed Calvinism for sure. And he was warmly welcomed there, but across the country as a whole, you got the sense he felt like Arminianism was winning and going to win the day because American temperament just wasn't suited for Calvinism. Mm. Is that an accurate read? And why did he think that? Yeah, it is an accurate read. And it's a great question. So when he made that trip to America, he was sent almost as a missionary for the kind of Calvinism that had been transforming Dutch culture for the previous couple of decades. So the Calvinism of Abraham Kuyper, the Calvinism that says, you know, do you despair of the society that you live in uh, as it, um, secularizes and falls apart and as we don't really know what we have to you know what kind of future we have to look forward to do you despair of the century that we've just lived through in europe of famine and war and revolution well here's how to think christianly about all of life in a way that gives you hope for the future so calvinism in europe at that point is tremendously compelling 
because it tells you how to look to the future, how to rebuild things, how to be saved, how to peace with God. Um, so in a, in a context where 19th century Europeans are really traumatized by the, just by the century that they've lived through, Calvinism there was a tremendously hopeful message for the future, mm. but it predisposes, or, but it presupposes a kind of um, like despondency or um, a pretty bleak view of you know where your culture is going um, without Calvinism. Um, so you have terms that that crop up in Europe and that develop in that period. Like in Germany, you would talk about Weltschmerz, a kind of just being sick of the world, um, being fatigued by the world that you live in. Or in French, they would talk about the mal du siècle, the kind of like the the sickness of the century, where you know you're, you're sick of the century. And um, so, in that kind of context, the kind of Kuyperian Calvinism that Bavinck was committed to was so compelling, and people were buying into it, and it was gaining mass popular support in the Netherlands. But then Bavinck went to America and found, well, these people are, you know, they're, they're buffered by the Atlantic and they're not mm-hmm. scarred by the century that Europeans have been scarred by. And in America, people have enough to eat. Um, in America, you know, there are jobs for everyone because you're having to create a whole new country and infrastructure and society. And um, people are really optimistic and moralistic. Their religion is fundamentally deistic. And, you know, they're all about pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. So how much harder will it be for them to hear what Calvinism has to say about God and about the human, the human being, that you can't save yourself. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps before God. Um, You contribute nothing. Instead, you receive and then you live in gratitude to respond. That's a very un-American message, um, having thought. And um, whereas the... I guess you could say an Arminian expression of Christianity that says, yeah, actually, you know, you choose, uh, you choose God, you know, you've got lots to do. You've got to strive for your own. Put your back into it, you know, entrepreneurial. Yes. Put your shoulder to the wheel, um, be entrepreneurial, create stuff. Um, You know, you take the initiative. Um, That was much more palatable, I think. So, um, or at least he thought so in an American context. So he'd been sent as, as I said in the book, as an emissary for the Dutch Calvinism of the day, and there were newspapers in the Netherlands following his journey and that were really concerned with telling the public in the Netherlands, what did the Americans think of Bavinck's Calvinism? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is being followed in the national news. And then he came back and told them, um, sorry, guys, you know, I've got disappointing news about these natives that you sent me to be a missionary <laughs> to. Like, they don't respond to our message. But what was so surprising then is that and Bavinck gave lots of public lectures uh, that people paid to go to to hear his thoughts on America, um, that he told his Dutch audience, you know, this isn't going to stop the spread of the gospel. God will have his way in America and with Americans, even if it's not through Calvinism, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. And but then he ended these lectures by saying, and after all, Calvinism is not the only truth. Yes, I was going to re- read that right here. Having seen so much that is good, one shrinks back from critique. May American Christianity develop according to its own law. God has entrusted America with its own high and great calling. May America strive for it in its own way, Calvinism, after all, is not the only truth. That's a mm. mic drop. And uh, it is. I, and people I, I were shocked. Of, yes, they that. must have been yeah. shocked. I kind of agree with it, and I'm not sure I like it either. Yeah, what did he I mean, mean by that? Was he trying to be uh, a little provocative? Yeah, very much so. He was. Um, um, but I think, you know, when you look at the things he writes about Calvinism around those years, um, he believed that Calvinism was the best expression of Christianity. 
and you know he himself i mean he spent his whole life trying to advance calvinism right but at the same time he argued very clearly that calvinism is not not the only expression yeah well not that it's not the only expression i mean you know that's obvious and demonstrable right. you just look at, look at the world around you the christians who don't say they're calvinists but he said that calvinism is not coextensive with christianity so it's um even the best expression of christianity can't cover the whole thing um and you know the christian faith is a catholic faith that spreads in context that calvinism hasn't developed and yet so and, and there can be authentic you know, gospel faith in contexts that haven't been touched by calvinism for example um, and even if Calvinism, you know, falls apart, um, then, you know, the the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and the Christian faith will continue to spread because it depends on God rather than us. And that's a really, for Bavinck, a very Calvinistic way to think about Calvinism uh, because, you know, the Calvinists also aren't pulling the world up by their own bootstraps. That's They're depending right. on God. So, um, but, you know, he was, that's part of why he's so interesting, that he says provocative things that make people think. Uh, he does. So um, I'm not even off the first page of my questions. Want to make sure uh, we say something about his wife, Joanna Skippers, mm-hmm. and then their daughter, Hanny, and and really her remarkable life. So say a little mm-hmm. bit about why he married the, the woman that he did when Amelia didn't work out. And then his wife was a remarkable person in her own right. And then their mm-hmm. daughter and grandkids were in the anti-Nazi resistance. You just hit on that a little bit at the very end of the biography. So say a little bit about his wife and his daughter. Yeah. So his wife was was a really fascinating character in her own right. Um, She was the daughter of a a wealthy ship owner. So she had a pretty privileged upbringing. She learned English and French growing up. She was a lifelong Anglophile. Um, She she loved London, for example. Um, Looks like that was her favorite city. And they used to travel there quite a bit. Um, and she traveled with him to America as well on his on, on their, his second trip to America in 1908. So she was a very cultured person and an intelligent person as well. So she you know, went to hear him give theological lectures before they were engaged. She had her own thoughts on some of his theological debates. Um, so she went, she was she was younger than he was as well, and outlived him by some way. And Bavink himself died when he was still quite young, when he was 66. Um, but with the Bavinks, with Herman and Johanna, after World War One, they very much perceived that and the, they couldn't really miss this because it was all around them. But you have a generation of young men who have died at the same time, and they're not mm. there for the young women that they would have otherwise married to you know, form family units with. So society has changed and it has to become individualistic. Uh, in a way that it wasn't before in Dutch culture, or it has to facilitate individuals to act within society, and you know, for a woman to have her own career, for example. Whereas if you look at you know their, the decades before that, Dutch culture is very much a culture of families, and um, you know you don't have women going to university, um, women don't have the right to vote, all those kinds of things. So Bavink and Johanna together um, really apply themselves in thinking and writing, but also in all kinds of practical ways to rethinking Dutch society in Christian terms. So what should the role of women be in this changed society that is now so different because of the war? And um, so Johanna was really fascinating in a lot of the stuff she did there. And when after Herman died, she carried on with this work. So she co-founded a journal called Christianity and the Women's Movement, where they got lots of really significant thinkers um, from their day and also women writers as well to write lots of issues on um, helping people think and also wrestle with Herman's own writings on this. So but to help people think about um, 
Christianity and the place of women in a changing society. Um, she was also really influential in um, the promotion of Calvinism in quite conspicuous ways as a woman in a very you know, male-dominated academy in that period. So she was really trying hard to keep his work going and thought a lot about it, trying to get it published in English and German. Um, Hanny, their daughter, they only had one child. Um, as you said, she had a fascinating and really tragic life as well. So she married a lawyer um, who'd studied um, at the Free University, where Bavink taught for a couple of decades, and they had three sons. So in World War II, uh, the Netherlands was occupied by the Nazis and there was an underground resistance movement. So Hanny and her family, um, well, Hanny and her husband were part of this. Um, we know explicitly that two of the three sons were involved as well um, in resistance activities. Um, one of them, uh, you know, um, taking photos of, um, or gathering detail on, you know, where Nazis mm -hmm. were stationed throughout the country and that kind of stuff. But they're also both involved with an underground newspaper, Het Parole, which is now a daily Dutch newspaper, but it was, it was started as an underground anti-Nazi newspaper. Um, so they were both, two, these, two of their sons were arrested, um, captured by Nazis, um, betrayed and so on, and ended up uh, being executed, um, uh, you know, facing the firing squad. And the, the third son, was at home with his parents um, and when Nazis came to their house and this third son survived by hiding in the attic and wasn't found by the parents. So Bavink's daughter and her husband were arrested. Um, Bavink's son-in-law, Hani's husband, uh, was, as I said, a lawyer. So he was he would help um, Jews uh, and Jewish property be transferred discreetly out of, so it wouldn't fall into Nazi hands and be taken uh, by mm -hmm. Nazis. And they also helped people in hiding, all that kind of stuff that went along with being in the resistance. So Bavink's son-in-law was sentenced to death, but then eventually that was lessened and he was taken to a concentration camp. And then he was being transported from the concentration camp to a prisoner of war camp when he died of dysentery. So in a very short space of time, Bavink's daughter, Hani, loses her, her husband, who has been taken away to a concentration camp, uh, two of her sons are are um, you know they they die facing a firing squad, and then she only has this one son Theo who's left. Uh, so they have a, a really tragic, uh, heartbreaking story, but also a story of of, of, of faith as well and uh, and hope. Um, so that was in some ways the the hardest part of writing mm. the biography, mm -hmm. um, because it, it's just it's a story of of unimaginable human tragedy and loss, and also faith and, and in a way hope as well in the midst of that. Um, and it's not a story that's been told in English before, but it's it's there in the postscript of the biography of what happened to Johanna, what happened to their family. Um, so it was it was a very uh, I mean moving thing to yeah. to come across in my research, and it felt like a like a real privilege and an honor to share their story with the rest well, it of was, the world. It was, it was I, I had no idea, and it was it was really sobering and heroic to read that. Now, you have a hard stop in just about five minutes because you are a good dad and you get getting kids from school. I have so many questions, and uh, we've hardly talked about Abraham Kuyper, who's such a looms large in this history of the Netherlands and in Bavink's biography. But I want to try to ask some big picture type of questions as we wrap up. Mm -hmm. uh, let me ask the question, then I'll give you the my thought behind it. Was Bavink an evangelical. Now, here's my thought behind that. You know, you talk about him orthodox and modern, and certainly you say later he preferred the term Calvinist to some other markers. And I was struck 
it, and maybe it's just what you were trying to use and moving the narrative forward that some of what I would associate with the Dutch Second Reformation, that kind of piety, and, and, and there was that strand of the secession movement that mm-hmm. was really that Dutch piety. I saw less of that in in the biography of Bavink and you know maybe evangelical. I'm sure there's a you know it was first a German word, so I know there's a, a Dutch word as well. But would he have uh, found affinity with the Anglo-American evangelical movement? Would he have used that term? Would he have you know saw himself as you know a, an academic who's still proud to be of the Whitfield and Edwards line of things. Mm. Was Bavink an evangelical? Mm. What a, a fantastic question. Um, so you do find the piety aspects in the biography, I think. I mean, you see this in the, you know, the chapter on his father who would cast That's lots right. yes. to know the will of God. Um, I never found Herman himself casting lots, but you know, if you read through his, his journals, his letters, as I tried to show in the biography, he really agonizes over um, knowing the will of God and whether he thinks what he's chosen for his life is what God wants for him. So there's, there's that a great aspect little there. book called "Just Do Something" that um, <laughs> that I wrote that he, he should have he should have just read there. Would he have, said have read yeah, if you had the professor yeah. gift of foresight. Uh-huh. Um, but in terms of the evangelical question, I mean, we can say fairly concrete things about this from his own interactions with um, American, you know, gospel centric. Um, Protestantism, because he mm-hmm. engaged with that as well, and and he was really struck by some aspects of it, especially in his second trip to North America, um, where he really kind of got wind of the the global missions movements. Yeah, was, right. That comes. And, and he writes that, that he writes that about how it profoundly affected him as well. And then he comes back to the Netherlands, and is all of a sudden it's all about missiology and getting mm-hmm. chairs and mission established at the Free University and in Campen and and developing thought and supporting missionaries, but also in promoting the evangelization of the Dutch themselves and realizing that lots of them are now functionally pagan. Um, they've been de-Christianized or unchristianized. I think where his main critique of, if we call it kind of generic evangelicalism in the English-speaking world, would remain the same today as it was in his own day, is the extent of what the gospel entails um, and what the gospel is a message for so one of the, the appendices that I've included in the book, so there's his, his travel writings on America, but there's another one in the appendices, which is um, a, like a series of points about evangelization, which I think are some of the clearest articulations of what the gospel means for Bavink. And the gospel does mean telling people they must be saved. They must you know, believe in Christ and trust in him. And you know, they have to go on living lives that are bearing fruit, that show um, sanctification. But as well as that, the gospel for Bavink is, you know, it's not just a message for your soul, but it's also good news for your body. It's good news for the whole of the creation that God is going to recreate when Christ returns. So the gospel is good news for art and for science. It's good news for your business. It's good news for your school. It's good news for politics. It's good news for journalism. And all of those things are part of the proclamation of the gospel. And actually what Bavink says is properly the work of evangelization. Um, so the gospel isn't just, you know, a decision for Christ that never gets followed up on. And it's not just a series of, you know, private devotional practices. Um, it's not just 
although this is at the center of it for Bavink, it's not just you know what happens in church on a Sunday uh, in terms of public worship for the Christian community, but it's also something that extends out beyond all of that and is uh, uh, the gospel is a message that tells people how to live for the glory of God. Um, in you know from like monday to saturday as well as sunday and in every sphere of their lives every sphere of human existence christ is lord of all and therefore the gospel has something to say to all of that so the gospel is i think Baving would say it's much more holistic than you know a century on a lot of evangelicals have made it out to be um, where he would say it's quite a one-dimensional gospel i think so he sympathized he would sympathize massively with evangelicalism but it, he thought that he had a lot to add to it uh Last question, whatever time you have, yeah. what you, you, I, I hear you talking there a little bit about maybe some lessons to draw, but you, you can talk more about that or answer this. What surprised you? What surprised you about Herman Bobbitt? What did you learn about your, your own faith? What weren't you mm-hmm. expecting in doing this historical theological labor of love? Yeah. Wow. Great question. Again, I was surprised by just how human he was and not that i went into thinking you know i wasn't trying to do hagiography this is critical historical scholarship but um i don't think i appreciated um just how much he could be both incredibly bookish but also you know be someone who could be head over heels in love and then end up being pretty crushed by that experience yeah um or you know just someone who um, like even on his deathbed, Bavink is fascinating because, you know, in one breath he's saying that he wants to enter heaven and see the glory of God, and but then be allowed to come back to tell the church and the world that it's true. But then also say that um, he doesn't know what to make of dying on his deathbed. That living is strange and dying is stranger mm. still. Um, so someone who has so many answers and who's so profound that articulating the Christian faith also. Um, has such, I guess, humility in what he can say. So, um, and all kinds of vulnerabilities in his own life experience and story. So that that was really fascinating. I think the other major lesson that I learned, which I guess I don't really have time to develop in this answer in the time we have left, but is his ability to recognize that in some ways his grand picture of how the world was going to go was was actually wrong, and that he got a lot of things wrong, and his expectations of, you know, how the gospel would progress through Dutch right. culture, and then what, you know, how you foresee the way that the next few decades will go. So in the in his let's say in his twenties and thirties, um, he really thought that the Netherlands as a culture was set up for you know a kind of mass re-embracing of Calvinism that although there are all kinds of new atheisms around and secularizing forces it was all going to run out of steam quite quickly and the people themselves would flock back towards their Calvinistic history and that there was going to be this you know great new phase where that, that was the case and um, and then that didn't happen at all and he realized that I think um, in the last two decades of his life and then he goes on promoting Calvinism but also in those decades um, he also spends so much uh, of his time promoting Christianity, defending a kind of generic um, Christian faith alongside its reformed expression uh, and, you know, promoting evangelism and so on, just because he got so much of his take on Dutch culture wrong for a couple of decades mm-hmm. and to have the humility to do that. I mean, he didn't, you know, um, tweet about it saying, <laughs> hey guys, right. I got all this wrong, but there is a clear shift in direction when he realizes I have gone in the wrong, uh, the wrong direction of them. 
um, in my strategy even for what I'm trying to do within my own culture. And um, you know, to realize that someone like Herman Bavink could get something so fundamental wrong and realize it and then be very thoughtful about how to shift direction was, for me, a, re a real surprise, uh, heartening, but also instructive as well in making me think as a Christian about how I interact with the world around me. Um, have I got it right? Have I got it wrong? Um, That's fascinating. Uh, I, I would love to ask a dozen more questions and you've been very generous with your time and I know you have kids to get and, and our lawnmowers here will we'll come back at some point. It's an excellent book. Um, so congratulations on that. And Baker Academic did a great job in putting it together. And the the drawing on the front is by Oliver Crisp. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. An original portrait, very kindly by Oliver Yeah. Uh, wow. I didn't know that. Great that's, theologian, great artist. Yeah. That's a, 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 I love the, the cover to it. So Bavink, a critical biography. Uh, everyone should get it. And I'll give you the last word by reading, by quoting you as you talk about his death and gathering around the gravestone. Uh, and it's a very simple gravestone, but you say much might be added to it. Here lies a dogmatician, an ethicist, an educational reformer, a pioneer in Christian psychology, a politician, a biographer, a journalist, a Bible translator, a campaigner for women's education, and eventually the father, father-in-law, and grandfather of heroes and martyrs in the anti-Nazi resistance movement. Under that heavy slab lie the earthly remains of Hermann Bavink, an Orthodox Calvinist, a modern European, and a man of science. Excellent conclusion. Dr. James Eglinton, thank you so much for being with us. I hope that uh, you're over here in the States, or I'm over there in the UK sometime, and we can be properly introduced over uh, a drink. That would be great. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. It was great to talk. <laughs>